0: Yeah, fire is great for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's just a natural process that that helps shape the plants and animals that live in the southeast. So as a private landowner, you're going to get a lot of benefits from fire, not only in the species that you're going to see, but just in the habitat quality and the aesthetics accessibility It's going to clear out that underbrush and, and make things easier to get into and see, increase your hunting opportunities and just all kinds of great benefits.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking with Georgia DNR biologist, Shan Kamek, about the basics of prescribed fire. Everything from how to prepare for the fire, what equipment you'll need, the timing of the fire to meet your objectives, important weather factors, and, and a whole lot more, Shan has a lot of experience working with prescribed fire and provides just a ton of great information that you're not going to want to miss. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA partner Mission Crossbows, featuring Mission's benchmark fire control technology with a two-stage match grade trigger, their easy load boat retention arm, and their one-of-a-kind decocking button that allows shooters to safely decock their crossbows without disengaging the safety or firing a bolt. And all that made right here in the USA. For more information about Mission Crossbows, check them out at missioncrossbows.com. Hey, before we jump on the phone with Shan, there's a lot going on right now with the National Deer Association, and I want to make sure you're aware of a few things that might be of interest to you. Uh, First off, we still have a handful of the special NDA Onyx memberships left, uh, but those are going pretty quick. If you didn't hear about that in the last episode, uh, what we've done is, if we've combined an NDA annual membership, an NDA cap, and an OnX Elite membership, which is their their highest membership level, uh, covers all 50 states in the U.S., all the private and public land ownerships, uh, for a total of ninety nine dollars. That's a hundred and sixty dollar value for just ninety nine dollars. Uh, And you get everything, you know, I mentioned previously, uh, we only had 150 of these when we started and I know we've sold a bunch. So if that's something that interests you, uh, you better go ahead and jump on that offer now at DeerAssociation.com slash OnX. We've also recently kicked off our latest fundraiser, the NDA Winter Sweepstakes. And with that, we're going to draw five lucky winners with one of those winners walking away with a $1,000 Bass Pro gift card, a $600 pair of loophole binoculars, and a $200 LaCrosse footwear gift card, uh, the other four winners will each get the loophole binoculars and the LaCrosse gift card. Uh, they just won't get that $1,000 Bass Pro gift card, but uh, five, five people are going to be very happy with that. Uh, so head over for that one, head over to DeerAssociation.com slash winner. And be sure to get your chances for our NDA winter sweepstakes. Also, if you enjoy learning about habitat improvement, food plots, and the whole land management process, consider checking out one or more of our Deer steer courses and modules coming up in 2022. Uh, They're both online and in-person options available, covering a a wide variety of topics. For our in-person courses, uh, this year we're going to be offering a Deer Steward 2 course, And that's August 12th through the 15th in Barnevald, Wisconsin. And that will include a tour of Vortex Vortex Optics headquarters. Uh, So pretty cool opportunity there. We'll also be offering an urban bow hunting module. This one's brand new, uh, very cool topic. And that one's going to take place July 30th through the 31st in Fairfax, Virginia. And that will be led by Taylor Chamberlain of Hunt Urban. So a couple of really cool opportunities there for in-person courses. Uh, Registration for both of those has opened as of February 1st, and you can take advantage of early bird pricing if you get registered by March 1st. So be sure to jump on that if that's something that interests you. Uh, In addition to the in-person courses, though, we also have our Deer Steward 1 online course as well as an assortment of online modules where you can kind of deep dive into specific whitetail biology and and whitetail management topics. Uh, And those courses are available 24-7. You can learn all about them on our website at deerassociation.com. Look for the Deer Steward link under the conserve menu heading. So check that out. You can learn all about our Deer Steward courses and modules. And then last but certainly not least, Hey, I want to say thanks to all of you who are subscribing and listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, We truly appreciate that support. I will say if you haven't checked out our other podcast yet, though, uh, be sure to do that. We, We also have NDA's Coffee and Deer podcast, and you can look that up on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe to it as well. Uh, that one is hosted by our president and CEO Nick Penizzato, and his friend Mike Grohman, aka the Doctor. Uh, and we're whereas this podcast, you know, we dive into kind of the hands-on habitat and and hunting tactics. Uh, Coffee and Deer looks more at the broader conservation issues and some of the the lighter side of of deer hunting and and telling those deer hunting stories. So the two podcasts really complement each other well. We alternate weeks publishing episodes, so if you're subscribed to both, you're going to get a weekly dose of content from the National Deer Association, and uh, your support on that is very much appreciated. So be sure to check out Coffee and Deer. And with that, let's jump on the phone with Shan Kammack to talk about prescribed fire. Hey, Shan, thanks for uh, joining us. How, How are you?
0: Doing great, Brian. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: Oh no, no! I appreciate you taking time out to to come on here and talk to us about some prescribed burning basics. Uh, I know this is a, a busy time of year for you. In fact, you know we already talked about you're heading out tomorrow to do some burning. So uh, yeah, I just appreciate you carving out some time here to uh, talk prescribed fire with us. Uh, before we get before we actually dive into uh, kind of the the meat of the the topic, there, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your role with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources?
0: Yeah, I've been uh, working with the Georgia DNR for over 20 years now. Um, Most recently, I've been running a seasonal fire crew and uh, working with the interagency burn team and kind of moving more into policy and education and writing grants to support fire. But, you know, had boots on the ground for a number of years. And as you know, fire is uh, one of my favorite things to do. So I get pretty (laughs) fired up about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the big things I do miss about the field work. I always enjoyed that. That burn season was was a good time. So uh, I I understand the appeal there. What I guess what initially led you to that interest in prescribed fire?
0: You know, when I got out of college, I started interning with the Nature Conservancy up in Kentucky and we were setting up a, a pre fire monitoring were some of their barons. And I was so excited, but they kicked me out to grad school before we actually ever lit any fire. Uh, so when I came down to Georgia, I volunteered for TNC down here. And that's pretty much what started my trajectory in Georgia and fire was which with the Nature Conservancy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I, I came I actually came to Georgia from Kentucky. I worked for the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife there for a while, and and it's amazing to see. We did a little bit of burning on on the public land that I worked on there, uh, but man, fire was so much more an important part of the management down here in in Georgia. It's uh, it was amazing just how much burning uh, we would do here down here in, yeah. in in West Central Georgia. So yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's jump into kind of some of the basics here of a prescribed fire, and really. I guess just start us out by kind of giving us an idea why, as, as a landowner, why would I want to introduce fire on my property?
0: Yeah, fire is great for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's a, just a natural process that, that helps shape the plants and animals that live in the Southeast. And um, so as a <clears throat> private landowner, you're going to get a lot of benefits from fire, not only in the species that you're going to see, but just in the habitat quality and the aesthetics Accessibility is going to clear out that underbrush and and make things easier to get into and see increase your hunting opportunities and just all kinds of great benefits
1: yeah, what for somebody of course our lot a lot of our listeners are uh, their interest is in, in deer you know white deer and deer hunting what kind of what are some of the benefits it might provide to somebody with that that focus in mind their, their deer hunting and, and deer management?
0: Yeah, when a fire sweeps through and uh, you know Takes all the nutrients and in, in that are in the plants that are burned up. It goes into the soil, and especially in the coastal plain, in a couple of days you're going to see plants start to uh, pop back out. And those forbs are so nutritious and tasty for deer, and is really going to create a nice smorgasbord for for all kinds of wildlife. Um, and then you know the way we burn, we kind of have heterogeneous or you know mixed effects where some places burn and others don't, and then that that habitat heterogeneity. Gives you places for the deer to have, you know, both foraging and bedding cover too.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Are Are there any circumstances, I guess, where you would just absolutely wouldn't recommend, you know, a landowner burning on their property? I mean, any, uh, whether it be, I guess, location specific or even management goals. Is there any, any time that fire isn't a, a good tool?
0: Yeah, fires, you know better suited for the more xeric habitats but in georgia there's a xeric pirate habitats across the state you know even up in the mountains Uh, i think a lot of people are used to seeing fire in south georgia especially for quail hunting and things like that but yeah fire's adapted pretty much statewide now you know a really mesic system you know a lot of hardwoods cove forests fire's not going to get into that a whole lot um some of the caveats for getting into fire, if you have if if you buy a property or if you have a property that hasn't seen fire in a really, really long time, you got to be careful when you first reintroduce it back. So there's some you know techniques and tips for uh, for that and, and definitely be cautious and be uh, pick the right weather, dormant season burns, which is in the winter when things are a bit cooler. That would be uh, some of my advice there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely dive into some more of those um, circumstances as well. Uh, there, there, and obviously, as you're already starting to mention there, there there's a lot more to burning than just, uh, you know, heading out into the woods and, and lighting a fire. Uh, there, there's a lot of variables and getting the kind of the desired results that you may want. And so can you kind of just briefly talk about some of the major factors that influence fire behavior? And uh, we'll dive into each one kind of a little deeper, but just if you kind of touch on, you know, some of the things that are going to impact um, the results you get from a fire on a property.
0: Yeah, so fire is is based on the fuels that you have. So that would be the kind of species that are growing there the last time it burned. So how much fuel is available to burn? And then, you know, weather factors like moisture. Is it has it been a wet season? Is the are the plants holding a lot of moisture? Um, and then weather on the day of the burn, obviously, we, we track things like relative humidity and that's going to change throughout the day. Wind speed and direction for smoke management. You really want to know where your smoke is going to go when you light a fire um, and temperature. You know, things are going to burn hotter when it's when it's warmer. So uh, we look at the weather and we try to track weather throughout the day to make sure that we're hitting that sweet spot for the goals. And it all starts with your objective. You know, what is your management objective for fire and why are you setting that fire for in the first place?
1: Right. Well, let's talk about time of year. Um, You know, we, we mentioned, or we, you talked about before we started recording that, you know, you're heading out uh, tomorrow to do some burning. And this is, it does seem to be, you know, that most popular time of year when people traditionally burn. I know when I worked with the DNR, you know, it was that uh, January to March was, was a big, Part of our burning season. Can you talk about? I guess first off, why why is that the kind of the main time frame when you see most people burning? And then touch on maybe you know are there reasons uh, that you you would burn outside of that typical winter time?
0: Yeah, time you know, frame? Brian. I think some of it's just logistics. Uh, Wintertime is when we bring in our seasonal fire crews, so a lot of people, a lot of agencies have more help in the winter. Um, it's also a cultural thing. You know, most people uh, <clears throat> grew up with fire and they were used to it in the winter wintertime. Um, so that's that's when we get a lot of our, our burning done. But different times a year, it's incredible. I, I listened to uh, Dr. Harper's podcast recently that you had with him, and he gave a, a, a talk at the North Georgia Prescribed Fire Council last year, and he really got people fired up and thinking about thinking outside those windows and what happens when you light a fire in a different part of the year. And I know our guys in, in uh, DNR really started experimenting with that and love the results, you know. So fall is a, is a great time to do site prep burning. If you want to capture the natural uh, regeneration of longleaf, it's been a, a big seed crop year, maybe or if you're even just planting, if you burn in the fall ahead of planting uh, your pine trees, you're going to have a lot better success in terms of that competition is knocked back, but also accessibility for those planters. They'll be able to get in there and get the trees in the ground more easily. And then my favorite time of the year to burn is in the growing season, or the lightning season. And that would be later on, like, you know, April, May, June. And plants are going to respond really, really differently, you know. In the growing season, and it kind of depends on the phenology of the plants and what what time of year that you're hitting them. um But you know, growing season burns are really going to knock down those those hardwoods, net competition. Things like sweet gum, if you if you hammer them right when they're like really sending their uh, resources up, you can really set them back a good bit. um And things like uh, palmetto, I. I've been trying to reduce the palmetto at, at, say, Crooked River State Park. And it is just like, it's just a sea of palmetto down there. And what really, really helps is, you know, knocking it back maybe with some mechanical, but then hitting it with a really, really good hot growing season burn. And then that kind of brings that species back into more natural balance.
1: Is it, is it tough to burn that time of year? You know, you would think, you know, everything's, everything's green. Uh, You look out there and you think, you know, what, what, What's going to burn? Uh, so is it like a pretty narrow set of parameters that you have to, that has to fall in place to burn that time of year or is it burned you know, it's, just like it's any furious. other time?
0: It, you know, you've got more fuel moisture in the plants themselves, right? And you probably have higher humidities during that time of year. Um, but things will still burn and and you, you pick that right weather and fuel moisture and soil moisture combination and you can get a good fire. Now, the thing is, it's a lot hotter, right? And so the people on the burn are are dealing with a lot more heat issues, um, and things get a lot hotter. So you got to know what you're doing with growing season burns, but it's an incredible tool. And it it might seem scary to be lighting things up when everything's just so green, and it's so hot. (laughs) And uh, especially, you know, if you're burning at night, you just see this sea of embers like blowing across the line. You're like, wow, wow but they're not igniting, right? They're just landing in green fuels and not igniting. And the thing about it is those embers are there in the daytime. You just don't see them.
1: Right. No, that's right.
0: that's what's incredible about burning at night. You can kind of see what's actually blowing out of your unit. And it's just embers that just kind of go out as they float away.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, you've mentioned a couple of times there about weather. And obviously that's, you know, I know from from my experience burning, uh, weather is key, uh, not only to to getting a, a good burn, getting your desired results, but just as you mentioned there, you know, just keeping things safe. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the different weather factors that you take into account when you're going to uh, do a prescribed burn, and kind of what conditions are you looking for that are going to be favorable for a burn with within those different types weather types?
0: You know, it really depends on your management goal. If it's a first entry burn you're going to pick a really, really mild day, you know, in the middle of the winter time when the temperatures are lower, the relative humidity is higher just to get that first entry burn, just to just to barely burn off that top layer. Um, but if your objective is to maybe just, you know, really clean out an area that's been well burned many times, you, you might pick a day that's a lot windier and a lot hotter and a lower relative humidity because it depends on what parts of that forest you're trying to actually consume and burn. And and that's the thing. You you learn what fuels are going to carry the fire. Typically, you know, it's the sticks and the grasses and the shrubs that are carrying the fire. But uh, certain kind of fires, like the the wildfires in the finoki, the fuel actually became the trees. You know, the trees were what were carrying the fire because it was such a big wildfire.
1: Yeah, and I guess we should should touched on that at the beginning. I I think you know most of our listeners probably have an understanding of of prescribed burning and, and what it's all about, but uh, for those uh, you know a lot of times maybe for somebody that's not in the know when you first talk about you're going to you're going to burn a block of woods or uh, you know some land, that's what they picture that wildfire, you know trees being consumed and everything, right. but uh you know, obviously that that that's not the case. That's not what we're out here trying to accomplish when we're when we're burning these areas. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Actually, what we're doing is preventing that, right? Because we're right. reducing yeah. the fuels in the forest, and then if a wildfire is to break were to break out, which they they do in Georgia. I mean, that's it's a natural thing that happens. Um, but if the fuels have been burning regularly, your your wildfire is really not going to be as catastrophic. And that's that's part of the problem with out west. You know, there's been such a culture. wildfire suppression and, you know, beetle die-offs and all kinds of of things like that, that now when a a wildfire breaks out, it's really, really hard to control. And it's really, really intense. So, um, kudos to, to the South for continuing to burn and keeping those fuels at a manageable and, and safe level.
1: Yeah. Now you mentioned humidity. I know that was always, you know, key. One thing we were really watching when we were lighting a burn, um, can you dive into that a little deeper? Kind of what what humidity range are, are you looking for? Uh, at what point does it start to get into a dangerous level? Or at what point are you probably not going to be able to burn at all, you know, on the upper end? What can you kind of give us some guidelines there?
0: Yeah, you know, there's some, they're not there's some typical uh, parameters, but there's not really hard and fast rules. Um, I'd say a lot of people are probably burning. On a relative humidity between thirty and fifty percent, maybe um, on sand hills or areas that are really dry, it's okay if that humidity gets down into the twenties. And and the thing is, you can change your ignition up to overcome a, a, a humidity issue, right? You can you can light the fire in a way that's going to be hotter if you have a higher humidity, and you can do things to cool the fire down with the way you light it if you if you have that lower humidity. Um, I remember I was burning at Little Okmulgee State Park and we had this uh, grizzly crew from Montana. They're wildland firefighters from out west. Um, And the humidity was like 70 percent that morning. And it was a field of of palmetto, you know, and longleaf pine. And they're just looking at me like, we're really going to burn today. This stuff's not going to burn. And we lit our test fire. And immediately, you know, we had 10 foot flames and they're like, oh, my gosh, because out west, they're just not used to seeing fire in a humidity that's that high, but in the South, it will burn. It will definitely burn.
1: Yeah. Uh, What, I guess what happens at uh, the lower humidity, I mean, what is it about lower humidity that, that starts to, or can start to cause some concerns?
0: Well, a lower humidity is going to make more fuel available. So, uh, you know, your fire will move faster and consume more things. Uh, That could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what your objective is for the day. Um, one thing that that I've dealt with in uh, areas that have not seen fire in a long time is is mature trees, mature longleaf pine trees have duff accumulated around the base of the tree. And that's a natural thing. But duff will burn. So if, if you pick a day that you don't have so good soil moisture and the humidity is low, you get fire that kind of eats around that tree and it essentially collars the cambium and kills the tree and it's very surprising, right? Because longleaf is a fire tree; it's a fire forest. And you would imagine, like, oh, it needs fire. But <clears throat> there are definitely some some times that you have to be careful when you're burning old longleaf when they have duff.
1: Yeah. What about wind? You know, you mentioned wind. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, you don't want uh, a crazy wind out there that's that's really going to take off. But at the same time, you know, from from my experience, at least, we you know we didn't necessarily want a a calm day either. Can you kind yeah, of talk about totally right. the wind? You're
0: totally right, Brian. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, you don't want to burn when there's any wind at all, right? Well, right. actually, you <laughs> do need a wind because you're setting a fire to walk into the wind. So you need to know what that fire is going to do. And if the, if the wind's variable, then the fire will just kind of walk in whatever direction that it wants and and be unpredictable. Uh, big Another big thing about wind is, you know, it's carrying your smoke. So you got to know what is downwind from where you're burning. If you have, you know, roads or hospitals, nursing homes, any kind of smoke sensitive areas, you got to be really careful about the wind direction that you choose so that you're not putting smoke on those areas that are really sensitive to smoke.
1: Right. What about cloud cover? How does, how would cloud cover play into a prescribed burn? Do you need a a bluebird sunny day or can you burn on a cloudy day? What's How's that going to influence it?
0: Yeah, that's another weather factor that we we look really closely at. And, and it's kind of, it's all about the stability of the atmosphere. So when you're doing prescribed burning, you want a slightly unstable atmosphere, which is more typically, you know, your, your sunny bluebird day, but that's going to encourage the smoke to lift up and get out and move out. So if you have like a cloudy day where the, uh, the clouds are kind of hanging low, that smoke is just really not going to disperse well. It's going to kind of raise up, hit that layer, and then fall down somewhere where you don't want it to. And, you know, when you call for your permit, which you which you always need to do when you're prescribed burn, um, Georgia Forestry Commission is going to look at those atmospheric weather parameters, and, and they won't issue a, you a burn permit if it's a bad day for dispersion. So, But it's good for landowners to understand that kind of stuff and and choose that day that's right and kind of know when you can have it and when when you're going to have that kind of day or not.
1: Right. Where's the where's the best place to get that kind of weather information prior to burning? And and keep in mind, uh, you know, this could be anybody in the country, not necessarily, you know, Georgia specific. Is there a a good central location to kind of get that kind of fire weather?
0: Yeah, yeah, there's this really cool website it's called the fire weather dashboard. It used to be called the fire poker. Um and basically you just drop your dot on the map of where you are and it gives you everything you need. Winds, relative humidity, all those atmospheric things, graphs and tables and you know, a forecast for up to a week out. So that's a really really good place to get fire weather data. What I like to do is look at a number of different uh weather forecasts to make sure that they're kind of agreeing. Because right. if you if you pick a day and there some of them are like, well, I think we're gonna have a north wind. And then the other one's like, well, it might be northeast or maybe east. So if if the weather forecasters aren't really sure what the weather's gonna be, that's probably not a good day to burn. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that is one thing I've learned, not necessarily from burning, really more from from hunting, is uh, the 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 weather can be so site specific. Uh, I don't know how many times I've I've looked at the weather forecast and said, OK, we're going to have a, you know, southeast wind today and I'll get out to my tree stand and, you know, drop drop some milkweed or something uh, as a wind indicator. And it's going, you know, completely opposite of what they told me it was going to be. Um, so, yeah, it can it can be really variable like you're talking about there and and even site specific um, yeah, based that's, on. Oh, go ahead. That's
0: something to think about. Uh you know topography plays in with wind or you know we're we're burning on the uh, those lakes in eastern georgia you have lake effect winds that come come up those slopes so you know your your prevailing wind for the day might be forecasted to be a west wind but later in the afternoon you might have a lake effect wind coming off there and and certainly the sea breeze on the coast that that's going to kick in later in the day and you got to you got to kind of plan for that and know that that wind is going to shift on you
1: right and that, that actually leads perfectly into the next thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, topography. You know, how, how does that impact fire behavior? And of course, you know, we mentioned it, it can obviously influence uh, your winds, but, but how else can it play, play an effect into your burning?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like to uh, use the analogy of imagine striking a match and holding a, it up in front of you. What does that match do? It burns slowly down towards your fingers, right? But take that match and you strike it, now hold it upside down. Now what's it doing? It's burning up really fast, and it's gonna burn your hand, right? So that's what happens in in topography. If you light a fire at the top of a hill or a mountain, it's gonna slowly walk down the mountain. Obviously, depending on what the winds are doing. So let's say wind's not really a factor. So if if you light that same fire at the base of that hill or that mountain, it's going to preheat the fuels up above it and get hotter and drier and run up in greater flame lengths as it runs up that hill, just like the match.
1: Trying to think of the best way to ask this. I, I'm actually asking this kind of for my, for my own personal benefit, but in my situation, I got about five or six acres here behind the house that I want to burn. I've been doing some, some timber stand improvement, thinning it back because uh, it was closed canopy. And it's mainly just kind of a finger ridge that most of it's on a ridge and it kind of drops off into a little creek bottom. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the the um, kind of the direction and and the prevailing winds. It's going to be hard to get a fire that backs down the the hill and with the right wind. You know, burning against the wind. Am am I better off burning uphill against the wind or downhill with the wind? If if I had to make that choice or or maybe you know choose a crosswind. I don't. How would you approach that? I guess if you're going to have a hard time getting the wind. And, and the uh, topography to kind of line up for a perfect backfire down the hill. Yeah,
0: it, it kind of depends on how much topography you're dealing with and, you know, how much wind, because there is an, inter- an interaction. Say when we're burning at Tulula Gorge, that's some severe topography. So, you right, know, right, that, yeah. that slope is going to probably trump wind in that case. But at O'Hoopy Dunes, you have a hill, but, you know, it's not a really a big hill. So in that case, wind is probably going to be this, the stronger factor. Um, and, you know, it just depends on uh, how much fuel you have on those slopes and how hot you want to see your first couple fires in terms of, of where you'd set it. But we, we typically like to light along the ridges and let that fire back down.
1: Gotcha. OK, well, let's talk about some tools for burning uh, for somebody that that's just going to get into burning. Uh, what kind of, of tools and resources are they going to need to be able to conduct a prescribed fire?
0: Yeah, that's you can get in with a uh, very, very little tools, you know, because you th- if you think about the fire triangle, three sides, right? You got fuel, oxygen and uh, and heat. So to control the fire, you just need to take one of those sides away. So fuel, that's a fire break. You can remove the fuel. So you can do that with a tractor and a harrow or you can do that even with a leaf blower. You can do that with a simple rake. Um to take away heat, you you might want some water. You can get a backpack sprayer. You can have an, a sprayer on your ATV with water. And then the uh, ignition source is, is a simple drip torch. And those things have been around forever and they work really, really well. And, and one drip torch will get a lot of work done, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, really very little, you know, financial investment required, um, especially, you know, when you're comparing it to planting food plots or some of the other stuff that people love to do. Uh, and of course, what I love about fires, you can impact, you know, such a, a large acreage in a really a, a minimal amount of time with a minimal amount of investment. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is,
0: it's definitely the, the most uh, efficient and cost effective land management tool that we have here in Georgia, for sure. And Brian, are you aware there are a number of agencies across the state now, Georgia Forestry and some of the uh, RC&Ds that are renting prescribed burn trailers? for a nominal fee, like $100, $150 a day, you'll get this giant trailer full of all the tools, drip torches, backpack sprayers, backpack blowers, maybe even a a blower that you can hook up to your ATV. And so I think there's six or seven of those now across the state. So you can rent them for the day and have all the tools that you need.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was not aware of that, but yeah, that's, that's good to know. Very cool. All right. Let's say, you know, we've, we've, we, uh, we have our training, you know, we, we've trained, we know what we're doing as far as prescribed burning. We, we got our tools in place that you talked about there. Uh, what kind of steps do we need to take to prepare for the the burn before we ever get out there and, and strike a match?
0: Yeah, so the training is important, like you mentioned, and uh, I'd recommend landowners take the uh, Georgia Forestry Commission's Prescribed fire manager course because that gets really into the mechanics of of burning and weather. Um, you want to have some kind of a burn plan, which is going to talk about your management objectives, kind of a, an overview of the area. You know what's burning, when's the last time it burned. Uh, you want your key contact information in there, so you want the Georgia Forestry Commission phone number because you're going to be calling for a permit. It'd be great to have your landowners uh, your uh, your neighbor's contact information in there. Cause it's, it's nice to be a good neighbor and, and give them a heads up when you're burning. So they don't freak out when they see smoke <laughs> in here, obviously. right? right? Yeah. Um, and that's a, a burn plan is where you talk about things like contingency plans. Like, well, I have a woods road that I can cut it off in the middle or like on your property, there's a Creek, you know, that can serve as the fire break and just kind of have you're you're doing your due diligence that you have thought about this and plan for it. So when you kind of have a, a good plan in mind, that's when you want to choose your fire breaks and make sure that those things are cleared to mineral soil. And that can be a trail or, or woods road. It could be a herald line or a plowed line. It can be a Creek too. If, if the Creek is big enough and does not have, you know, fuel dams across it. Right. Um, and then, then you're just looking out for the weather. Um, but, you know, back to training, there's a lot of great information on, on the Internet. Uh, the Georgia Fire Council website has got a lot of resources for people getting into burning. Uh, Longleaf Alliance, they have uh, academies. There's learning burns all over the state now, field tours. Just get out and see, you know, areas that have burned and participate in some of these, these activities. And you will really learn a lot. You really will. and You'll be able to apply it on your own land.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely not something, um, you know, you just want to, you just want to go out there and and attempt without, without the proper training and and knowledge. Because like I said, there's a lot more to this as we're discussing here than, than just going out and, and lighting a fire and watching it burn. Even, even with good fire breaks, there's, there's just a lot of stuff to take into account and, uh, you know, like you said, get, get the training And uh, if you can participate in in a burn, you know, with somebody else and kind of see how that that all works, uh, uh, just the more experience you can get with it, the better. I know it's funny. I've I've talked to my boss, Lindsay Thomas, about this. I've I've burned thousands of acres, you know, working with the working with the DNR and I've got six acres to burn behind my house. And I'm like a nervous wreck about it because, (laughs) you know, this time it's on me. You know, it's all on me. So. Uh, It's definitely a different experience when, you know, it's on your own place and and you're on the hook for the results, you know, and you got to, like you said, you got to think about your neighbors and what all your impact and uh, besides just your your little piece of property there. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier about how there's there's different ways um, you can light a fire or conduct a prescribed fire um, to get different results. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's, you know, we've got our, we've got our fire breaks, everything's lined up. Well, actually, before I jump into that, you know, we're talking about preparing for the burn. What about, you know, obviously in most cases, this is not something you're going to want to do by yourself. Um, you know, how, how many people do you need to to conduct a prescribed fire? I know it's going to be size dependent, but what, what, what do you, is there a certain number you typically shoot for, you know, per acre or per hundred acres or, or how do you figure that?
0: Yeah. You know, it really, really depends on, on the complexity of the burn and the size of the burn and when the last time you did burn, but certainly you want several people in case somebody, you know, trips in a hole and is down for the day or something like that. You definitely want people to help because you've got people lighting the fire and then you've got people holding or watching your lines to make sure the fire is staying where it needs to be. So you know, in, in some of our WMAs, we'll have three or four people burning a couple hundred acres with ATVs, right? So ATVs are going to get you around a lot faster. You can light right. with the, the ATV. And then we'll have up to 30 or 40 people on a burn, you know, with a helicopter in a place like Tulula Gorge or some of the larger WMAs. So it just really depends on on the complexity of the burn.
1: Right, right. You just want, like you said, you want, you want enough people to wear somebody can always be kind of monitoring those fire breaks and and making sure that that fire is not creeping somewhere. It's not supposed to go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just uh, recently trained up our new seasonal fire crews and, and that's the, uh, that's the big thing you got to teach new people in fires. Like they're so mesmerized by the fire and they're just staring into it. It's like, no, no, actually I need to, I need you to turn around and look behind you. I know there's no fire back <laughs> yeah. there, but but that's where we don't want fire. So you need your eyes in the green to keep an eye on things, make sure it's not spotting out of the unit.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Cause it, it will, it'll, it'll sneak up an old dead snag or something. And the next thing you know, there's embers going across the line and yeah. <laughs> you're putting out spot fires. So you know, definitely something you got to pay attention to, but yeah, getting back to what are some different ways to conduct the the prescribed burn. Once, once, like I said, we're out there, we've got our plan in place, we got our breaks, kind of walk us through the process at that point and kind of some different steps we can take depending on our goals and and how hot we want it to burn.
0: Yeah. So you'd always want to start with a test fire. That's going to be on the downward side of the unit, kind of in, in representative fuels. And, and basically you're just lighting the fire and you're, you're just watching it. It's like, is that the fire behavior I was expecting for the day? Am I going to achieve my goals? I mean, maybe maybe it's a really wet day, and your your test fire doesn't take off. You don't want to burn that day because you're not going to achieve your objectives. Um, If it's super spicy day, and and it seems like that fire is going to get pretty hot, do you have enough resources to hold on to it? And is it that the kind of fire that you want to see? So once you have determined, yeah, I like I like what I see in the test fire, because and then you're going to extrapolate if like. I'm seeing this in this kind of habitat with a humidity of 50%. So, you know, three or four hours from now, when the relative humidity is in the 30s, what is this fire going to look like? Um, and then and typically after that, you will light the downwind side of the unit where the, the wind is pushing against you and you're establishing what you call your black line. And that's kind of like the anchor point for the unit. And you just slowly let that fire back into the wind, building the black. Um, and then you can slowly draw around your other lines. Uh, you want to be careful about just walking the, the perimeter of your burn unit and just lighting a big fire around the outside. Cause that's a ring fire. Right. And, and what's right. going to happen there is the fire is going to swoop all into the middle and, and have a conflagration and, you know, hurt the trees and stuff, but also wildlife's not going to have any Avenue of escape. So if you're setting a backing fire, the critters have plenty of time to to scurry away and fly away and and sense that that fire is coming.
1: Yeah. What else can you do? I know, you know, there would be times we, of course we'd always start, like you talked about lighting a backing fire, but then sometimes, you know, we might get out there in front of it and, and light a head fire and just, I guess to really just kind of to move things along Um, or sometimes maybe go along and just drop some, some spots here and there uh, to kind of pick things up. Can you, we talk about some different strategies there and why you would yeah, do this. That. That's,
0: that's my favorite part of the fire. It's kind of <laughs> like painting fire on the landscape. It's it's really, really fun and incredible and science, you you know, so you have your your black on your downwind side, and like you said, now you can do your interior ignition. So if you have a torch and you walk directly into the wind pulling a string of fire, you are setting a flanking fire. And behind you, that fire is slowly going to move in both directions and sweep across the land. Now, if you get ahead of your black and you light a strip that's parallel to that, that's a head fire, right? So that strip is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter and bigger and bigger until it slams into your black. And so that's going to create a more intense kind of fire. Like you said, the spots or the dot ignition is just dropping a dot, walking, you know, 30, 50 feet, dropping another dot. And what a dot does, it will back into the, into the wind on one side and run with the wind on the other as it grows. And those dots will also grow bigger and bigger and hotter until they hit the next dot. So that's a way to kind of cool things down the more dots you put out. And, and that's kind of the, uh, the, uh, the way that we ignite with helicopter is dropping those balls of fire in a pattern where they kind of come together before they get too hot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've even seen now, uh, of course, the, after I left, we I've done a couple of helicopter burns, got to do it when I was with the DNR, but I've seen now they're using things like paintball guns, uh, even drones to, to ignite those yeah. spot fires within the fire. You're
0: right. You're right. Yeah. We're all, we've, we're all investing in pyro shots, which are, or shooting those ping pong balls like that we use in the uh, helicopter. And uh, yeah, drones, that's, that's a pretty scary thing, but uh, I've been <laughs> on a demonstration burn with the drone and it's pretty amazing to watch this little drone flying over your unit, dropping those, those balls of fire. It can be a, a super efficient tool if you have a good yep. drone operator.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that would be key. But yeah, I could see where that would be, you know, a, a, a huge cost savings uh, over having to, you know, line up a, a helicopter to come out there and, and drop those those ping pong balls. so Yeah, you know, that's, drones that's are super really cool. cool. We,
0: we were playing around with them uh, on one of my burns, uh, not dropping balls of fire, but just watching our igniters. And yeah. my drone has a, a thermal infrared camera. So I could see how the different igni- ignition techniques were working on my interior igniters. And even in mop up, it's super cool. So I'm, you know, driving down the line with Sparky, Mopping up at the end of the day, which is where you're putting out any kind of burning debris that's near the fire line and the drones flying over me and, and sees a couple things that I ac- actually missed. There was no fire. There was just heat. And so I was able to stop and walk straight to this you know, burning stump hole that was right near the line and put a bunch of sand on it and put it out.
1: Yeah, that it. That is cool, and I'm glad you you brought that up because I did not have in my notes here to talk about the mop up process, but that's that's an important part of it. Obviously, can you dive into that a little more? What kind of what you know we've we've set the burn and it's kind of run its course, maybe you know maybe we just did a slow backfire and it's burned all the way from where you ignited it to your your furthest fire break. So everything's in the black now. Um, what's the process? Obviously, you, you don't just pack up and go home at that point. What What do you need to do to ensure that the fire, you know, still doesn't end up across the break?
0: Yeah, so mopping up is basically looking for any problems that might be near your fire break. Typically, things burning on the inside of the unit deep inside are not a problem. So we'll set a standard for for the day, you know, on a WMA, it might be half of a chain, 33 feet. Uh, At a state park, it might be 100 percent because we don't want to have any kind of lingering smoke. But basically, that's, that's going around the fire break and looking for any kind of burning snag near the line, possibly that could fall over or send embers over or anything that, that's still burning sticks or logs. So we'll, we'll cut those up and roll those deeper inside or, or put them out with water. So things like that. But basically, just making the, sure that the perimeter near your fire breaks on all the sides are cold and out and there's no active fire. And then it's right. definitely important you got to come back the next day to make sure things are still quiet and and calm because uh, if you have weather that gets drier and and hotter, then some of your some of those things can reignite. So you want to walk that perimeter again and check and make sure that everything's out.
1: Right. Yeah, because well, you would be absolute or some of the listeners would be absolutely amazed at how long some of those snags and stuff can can continue to to smolder and burn. Oh, yeah. Anything else? Anything that I've missed as far as that someone would need to know about prescribed fire that may be, you know, just learning, just just getting into it and considering it for their property?
0: Yeah. You know, I can send you uh, uh, some really good links to get people started in fire and encourage them to check out these websites, things like the Southern Fire Exchange. It's a great resource for webinars and podcasts and fact sheets. Uh, about a bunch of different topics related to fire. And and that, that website actually links managers with researchers. So you're learning about the latest, greatest research that's going on on fire and how we can apply it to our work. Um, I also encourage people to get involved in the Georgia Prescribed Fire Council or, you know, other states have fire councils. We have meetings each year which cover a a bunch of topics, including forestry and wildlife and how those things interact with fire. So you can find uh, those recordings too for, for past years, but it's always nice to, to meet people in person and, and uh, just meet other people that are doing fire.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be sure to, I'll be sure to include links to that stuff in, in the show notes of, of this podcast episode. So they can, they can check out those resources Uh, One thing I did, I kind of want to circle back on since our listeners, you know, do come from from across the country. And I know we've talked a a lot specifically about Georgia and the south. But I mean, is prescribed fire a useful tool, you know, for across the country? I mean, is there is there a place for it in the in the northeast and in the Midwest and other parts of the country?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of the habitats across the country are fire adapted? Need fire to be healthy and and, and thrive? So for sure, and it's going to depend on where you live and what kind of fire history of the site of how you would reintroduce that that back. But yeah, fire is going to um, you know reduce the fuel load and and make things a, a safer place and make make the forest more healthy
1: for sure. Yep, absolutely. Well, Shan, I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your time today. I think we've. Uh, Covered the, the, the topic pretty well for somebody. And, uh, you know, from there, if, if they have a further interest in, in fire, they can check out some of the, the resources you mentioned. Uh, look for some training in their respective states, because I know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different state forestry agencies out there that that might uh, offer some type of, of training and certification. And so they, they can check that out and, and take those next steps. But uh, I, again, I appreciate your time coming on and talking to me today.
0: Yeah. Thanks again for having me, Brian. I appreciate it.
1: All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Shan Kamek. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere. You could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots habitat improvement um, deer management you name it Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related we got some good content right there on our website available to you so check that out and of course you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms facebook instagram twitter and youtube youtube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.